0: Um, I don't know um, uh, if, I was thinking this week and kind of made up a word. I don't know if, you, if you've ever had a moment where you disimproved something, where, um, you know, when you tried to make something better, when you tried to improve it, but you ended up just making it worse. Um, it, it was not improved, it was disimproved. And, and one of the funniest examples that I can remember happened a few years ago of this. It, it kind of became a, a meme and sort of a, a viral story. Um, but it happened in a small town in Spain. And so there was, a, there was a small Catholic church there named the Sanctuary of Mercy. And they had a beautiful painting of Jesus from the early 1930s. There's the, there's a picture of the, that that was painted on one of the walls in the Sanctuary of Mercy. And as you can tell there, it's already starting to deteriorate a little bit. Um, and even in this picture, and it, start, it was starting to peel and and. and Um, come off the wall a little bit um, and flake off. And so it got so bad there, you know, got really bad. They decided to try to have it restored, to commission somebody to to restore it. And that's where our hero stepped to the plate. 81-year-old Cecilia Jimenez stepped to the plate. She said, I love Jesus. I love the church. I love to paint. I can fix this painting and return it and restore it to its former glory and here was the result of what she did nailed it put them side by side oh that's fantastic Jesus has like a massive neck beard or something in her painting and like he kind of looked more like a monkey I don't know what's going on it was definitely disimproved right it didn't, she didn't improve. It made it worse. She was trying. She tried really hard. Bless her heart. She tried really hard, but it was disimproved. And, and the truth is like, we, when you stop and think about it, we do this all the time with all kinds of things, unfortunately, even including our own lives. Like I, I've definitely done this in my life. Like, like here's something I'm, i have been pretty good at as, a, as an adult. And maybe you can relate like, like if you ever had a bad day or you've been under a lot of stress uh, or, or something happens and you're really upset. And so You do something that in theory that you believe will make you feel better. The problem is, is after you do that thing and you feel better for just a moment, you end up feeling worse and regretting it. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Like the coping mechanism that you have in your life, whether, you know, when when the chips are down and you're stressed out and you've had a long day, whatever it is, things are not going well. and, And we all have different things. Some of us eat. Some of us shop and buy stuff and order things on Amazon. Some of us eat and order stuff on Amazon. Some of us drink or smoke or binge or scroll or just numb out and game, like put our headphones on and game for hours and hours on end. And what do we tell ourselves when we're going to do that? Right? We tell ourselves like the, the rationale is, I mean, I know it's not the best thing for me, but I deserve it. I mean, it was a really, really, really tough day or it was a really, really, really tough week. And our rationale is like, it's not really that bad to do something that's bad for us to feel good when things aren't going good in our life. And the truth is it kind of works at least temporarily, right? Like it, it, I mean, if, if it wasn't enjoyable in the moment, we wouldn't do it at all. And so we do get this little shot of, dopamine, this little shot of pleasure in the moment. The problem is that it wears off pretty quickly. And as soon as it wears off, it leaves you feeling more unhappy than you were before. And so instead of feeling better, you end up feeling worse. And sometimes you feel so bad that you start feeling like you gotta do more of the bad thing, the thing that's bad for you, just so you can feel a little bit better about having done it the first time. And of course, when you do, you get another hit of pleasure, another hit of dopamine. The problem is it's a vicious cycle, right? It ends up digging the hole of unhappiness in our lives even deeper and leaving us and our lives and our happiness disimproved. I have um, spent most of my adult life with a substance abuse problem. And the substance I abused was food. Food has been kind of my favorite medicine in my life. And I have medicated everything and every kind of emotion with food. And there's always been people that are like, you're only eating your feelings. And I'm like, I know. And they're so delicious. If God didn't want me to eat them, he wouldn't have made them taste this good. But why do we do those things? Why, why do we have those habits? Why do we have those coping mechanisms that ultimately end up being, well, kind of destructive in our lives? Well, one of the reasons is that, that we often equate happiness with pleasure but they're actually very, very different things. See, pleasure usually is almost always short-term and is self-focused, but happiness is actually long-term and is usually relationally and other people focused. Even in our brains and how we process these experiences, they're different. Pleasure actually works on dopamine. When you do something to feel better, when you get a little buzz in your pocket and you pull it out and you scroll for a second, you get a little tiny shot of dopamine in your brain. And, and, but happiness is different. Happiness actually works on serotonin and it doesn't just, you don't know, just get the little shot and it goes away. It actually is much, much more long lasting. Now that may sound like semantics um, for you, but it's actually not. It's a fundamental difference in the way that God created us and the way that our brains are wired. Because sometimes pleasure and happiness feel like they're substitutes for each other. Like they're just different ways of getting at the same thing, but they could not be more different. Now, of course, pleasure isn't bad. I mean, God created it. He wants you to experience it but because we confuse one and substitute it for the other, we often end up prioritizing and pursuing pleasure and feeling good in ways that ultimately sabotage our own life and our own health and our own happiness, which is why you and me and pretty much all of us have known people who have lived lives where they've experienced a lot of fun and they've, ex- they've experienced a lot of pleasure, but they aren't really that happy. I mean, because eventually pleasure stops feeling like pleasure and it actually starts feeling like a prison. And, and so many of the things that we do in our lives and our coping mechanisms, they aren't bad or unhealthy for us in the same ways, right? Like sometimes they're obviously and inherently destructive, right? Like, like nobody's like, well, I mean, there's some good parts to doing meth. Like no, nobody's like that, right? Like they're just like, no, it's obvious. Don't do meth. It's bad for you. It's inherently bad for you. But then sometimes it's just that we, we got too much of a good thing, where it's not necessarily bad for you, but because of the way in which you consume it and use it, whether it's sugar or alcohol or Netflix. And then there's times, other times in our lives where it's, it's just not the right time or place or season. Like it's cool to be, you know, to play, you know, rec softball and have practice three times a week and games, multiple games every weekend when you're single. But when you're married and you have three kids at home, it's not really necessarily helpful or healthy. Now, if we could all just have this collective moment of honesty, I think we'd all have to admit that whatever it is that we do to feel good when things are bad is actually just probably an act of avoidance. It's a way that we distract ourselves from the fact that our life really isn't going the way that we want it to. Unfortunately, whatever it is that you do to medicate one emotion, medicates them all. I love what Brene Brown says in one of her books. She actually writes this. She says, we can't selectively numb our emotions. When we numb the painful ones, we also numb the positive ones. And sometimes like we eat a whole pint of Ben and Jerry's chocolate therapy ice cream because of a specific thing that happened, right? Because somebody hurt us or because we got discouraged at work or we got in a fight with our boss or we didn't get the promotion or whatever it is. And then sometimes we do it just because we're just kind of unhappy generally in our life. We feel trapped or stuck or empty, or we thought we'd be farther along than we are right now. See, whether we want to admit it or not, we all tend to focus on external pleasures to avoid dealing with the internal pressure that we feel in our life. But if you stopped and thought about it, it stands the reason, right? If we keep doing all of these things and putting all of our time and energy into doing things that have no ability to actually make us happy, it means that we're actually ignoring and putting no time or effort and energy into actually developing and doing the things that can actually make us happy. But no matter what it is that we're trying to avoid, when we do this, we always end up unhappy when we repeatedly choose in the short run things that sabotage who we want to be and who we were created to be in the long run. So in Romans chapter seven, verses 15 and 19, the apostle Paul writes these words and kind of begins to tap into this conversation. He says, I don't really understand myself for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. Have you ever been there? That thing that you just, oh, you want to stop so bad. You don't want to do it. It just pulls you in and sucks you in and you do it. And you get that that little hit of pleasure, but there's almost no pleasure in it because now it's a prison. Verse 19, he goes on. He says, I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. If you were to go back and read all of Romans chapter seven and read this whole section, it, at times it feels like he's writing and you can feel the desperation. It feels almost frantic at times. I'm gonna leave off his conclusion though. In this section, it's like he's saying the very thing that we were just talking about. There's who I profess to be. There's who I want to be. There's, who, there's how I want to live. There's the things I want to do, but then there's all this other stuff that I've gotten trapped just to make myself feel better and I tried to make it better but it just keeps getting worse and nobody actually has to tell us how unhappy that makes us because we've all been there and that's the issue with so many of our coping mechanisms right that we actually feel ourselves becoming less and less of who we want to be less and less of who God created us to be not more and it always 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 makes us feel worse not better it makes us feel disimproved. We've all said to ourselves at some point, I thought I knew what would make me happy. But it turns out we don't. Most of the time we're wrong. Which means that you actually probably shouldn't always believe what you think, right? Because you've made decisions in your life based on, well, I thought this would make me happy, and you have been completely wrong. And often we're wrong in the most devastating of ways about the most important stuff in life. So that there's a there's a guy in the Old Testament his name is Samson and His life and story, I think, illustrates so much of this conversation, and so I wanted to take a few minutes, and if you want to go back and read it afterwards, um, we're going to kind of skip around some of his story, but it's found in the book of Judges in chapters 13, 14, 15, Uh, and so we're going to pick and pull out some different excerpts of different moments in his story that I think are instructive and helpful. So in Judges chapter 13, if you have a Bible and you want to follow along or you following along in the, you know, the, the Bible app, otherwise the, they'll be on the screens behind me. So Judges 13, beginning with verse two, it says that, it says, "...in those days a man named Manoah lived in the town of Zorah, and his wife was unable to become pregnant." And they had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to her and said, you will become pregnant and give birth to a son and his hair must never be cut for he will be dedicated to God as a Nazarite from birth. This was just a special vow in Judaism. Okay, and he will begin to rescue Israel from the Philistines. Verse 24 says, the woman gave birth to a boy and named him Samson and he grew and the Lord blessed him. So we're gonna read a little bit more about some of the things Samson did in just a second, but I wanted to pause here because Samson was born with a ton of expectations for his life. He grew up, in fact, feeling like at times that there were the, the weight of an entire nation, an entire people, the entire nation of Israel, that, they, that that weight was on his shoulders, that they were counting on him, that they needed him to come through for them. Now, that pressure was all mostly what he put on himself, because it wasn't real they like they re- really the pressure was on God. God was really the one to provide for them. God was really the one to come through for them. God was really the one to lead them. But Samson grew up with all this pressure that it was all on him that he had to make it happen. And and like Nobody has to tell us that's, that's too much for anybody, right? Like where everybody's watching you and everybody has opinions about you and everybody's like, why don't you cut your hair? Like what's going on? Like, and you feel like you gotta be perfect and you can't take a day off and you can't show any weakness and you gotta have all the answers and you gotta come, like you cannot fail. You have to come through every time. See, some of us lean into coping mechanisms because things are going bad in our life, but sometimes we lean into them because we just can't handle the pressure or the demands of trying to live up to all the expectations and all the good that we feel like we gotta do in our life. So, like us, Samson is incredibly flawed. He's incredibly human. And so, his story kind of bounces all over the place. He chases every whim. He does whatever he thinks will make him happy. And ultimately, each time he does, he ends up flipping out. He can't handle it. It doesn't go his well, which it doesn't go his way whenever things don't go his way. Like that, that's what happens to us. Like we try something, we want to be happy, we go do this, and it doesn't work out. And we kind of just flip out and move on to the next thing. And, and so, in Judges chapter four, he goes on a trip, and this is what happens. And, Verse two and Judges 14, excuse me, says this. It says, when he returned home, he told his father and mother, a young Philistine woman in Timnah, which is a town that he went to, she caught my eye. I wanna marry her, so go get her for me. This guy is a real romantic, right? So he's like, she'd be hot. I scrolled her. I'd be sliding into her DMs on Instagram. Mom and dad, you gotta go get her for me. and And so they do. But, in a total shocker that nobody sees coming, it doesn't go very well. It doesn't go well at their wedding. Things are bad between him and his parents. Things are bad between him and his bride-to-be Things are bad between him and this wedding party because he goes, it's an out of town wedding. So he goes to the town where they're gonna get married. And that's just a lot of stress. I don't know if you've had to deal with that. So they got that stress. And so half of the wedding party, he doesn't even know them. And he rolls up like he's this big baller. Like he's got all this money, throws this big party that 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 people in the upper echelon would throw. And so the party that, you know, the part of the, the wedding party's like, dude, we can't afford, like I, I don't even have the wedding clothes for this kind of wedding. And so Samson's like, I got you. So he loved to play games. So he's like, he gives, them a, he gives them a riddle. He's like, if you solve the riddle, I'll give you everything you need to be in my wedding. They can't solve the riddle. In they run up to the wedding. They're trying to solve it. They're trying to solve it. They can't figure it out. Everybody's getting frustrated. Samson's just manipulating and using people, all these pawns, you know, just having a great time. And so the wedding party comes to the bride. They're like, If there's one person that can get us the answer, it's the bride. So they come to the bride and they're like, you, they start putting all this pressure on them. So she starts going to him day after day and begging him to tell her the solution to the riddle. And he won't. He's like, I haven't even told my mom and dad. Why would I tell you? Which is a bad answer, right? Like if you're about to get married, like I would, you know, you're below my parents and I didn't even tell them. Why would I tell you? And so finally, the story goes where she's crying and she's putting all this pressure and says she's nagging at him day after day, after day, after day. And so finally he's like, fine. And he tells her the answer and he's just like, but whatever you do, do not tell them. And she's like, okay. And then she leaves and she goes and tells them. And so he loses it. Judges 14 verse 19 it says he went down to the town after he finds out. Because now he's on the hook for all these wedding clothes. And so he did what we would do, guys. He went and found 30 men and he killed them and took all their belongings to give to his wedding party. Samson was furious. He was so furious about what had happened that he went back home to live with his father and mother. So he storms off. He's like, look, we're gonna get married, but it's not today. I'm going home with my parents. When he gets home, he's so oblivious. He's so self-involved. He doesn't even notice that his bride to be is not around anymore. In Judges 15, this is how it begins. It says, Later on, during the wheat harvest, Samson took a young goat as a present to his wife, and he said, I'm going into my wife's room to sleep with her. Okay, take notes, guys. All right? You want a, the way to your woman's heart? You take a young goat, and be like, Hey, babe, it's time. <laughs> I brought you this goat. I don't know. I, all right, you can try it, see if it works. But her father wouldn't let him in. I truly thought you hated her, her father explained. So I gave her in marriage to your best man. But look, her younger sister is even more beautiful than she is. Marry her and said, don't you, when you read these stories, don't you just feel better about your life? Like all the drama, you're just like, what is going on with these people? He went down to get married and then he got mad and then he killed some people and then he went home and then he's like, hey, I got to go, let's get it on. And he's like, her dad's like, no, I don't think so. Actually, I let her marry your best man. He's like, what? I mean, what is this? Is this Jerry Springer? I mean, like, that's why those stories That's why those stories are popular, right? We watch them just to go, man, there are people in the world that are way more screwed up than us and this feels pretty good. So verse three, it says, Samson, I think this is such a, a crucial moment to the story. Samson says, this time I cannot be blamed for everything I'm about to do. Have you ever heard somebody say that? You made me so mad. You did this, not me. I can't be held responsible for what I'm about to do because I'm so mad. I'm just like, you know, it's your fault. It's not my fault. Right? That's what he's saying. Like I'm not, whatever I do next is not on me. It's on you. So what does he do? Judges 15 verse eight. He goes out and he attacks the Philistines with great fury and he killed many of them. And then he went to live in a cave in the Rock of Etam. Now, here's what I find fascinating about this story. I mean, it's unsettling. He's clearly got all kinds of emotional issues. But here's what I find fascinating. Samson is God's chosen man to help him put the world right to lead his people. He was given all this extra gifting. He was even given supernatural ability. If you read some of Samson's story, maybe you know that he had incredible strength that he could actually go out and fight whole armies by himself. But you know what? When you read Samson's story, you know what he never does until the very end after he's captured and all of his games catch up with him and he's going to die this brutal death. You know what he never does until that moment? You know what he never does when he's faced with all the disappointment or worry and hurt, all the frustration, all the anxiety, all the anger that he feels when things don't, he he never actually once calls out to God in prayer. He never looks to the Torah, the scriptures. He never goes to the tabernacle to worship and offer a sacrifice. He never seeks wisdom from the priests or the prophets or other spiritual mentors around him. I, I mean, shouldn't, For this guy in this situation, given who he is, shouldn't that have been his first response? Instead, he just indulges his emotions and goes off. I love Philippians chapter four, verse six and seven. We actually talked about a little bit last week, but I want to read it again. It says this, it says, don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all that he has done. Then then, then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything that we can actually understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. See, prayer should actually be our first response, not our last resort. See, one of the things I love about what the apostle Paul is saying here is in Philippians is is that when we actually take all that stuff inside of us and we actually direct it into the right place, when we actually come to God and we talk to him about it and we begin to process our life and all that stuff with him, that he gives us a peace that passes our ability to even understand or comprehend why we can have peace in the situation we're in. And you know what? Almost every single person who has peace lasting, deep, and abiding happiness in their life. You know what that looks like? It looks like peace, peace with yourself, peace with God, and peace with other people. See, prayer should actually be our first response, not our last resort. Instead, most of the time, we do what Samson did. We don't seek God, we don't pray, we don't look to the scriptures, we don't reach out to other people. We just indulge our emotions. We just go off. We just do something that makes us feel good in the moment. Now, of course, none of us go on this like crazy serial killer rampage like Samson did. But we all have ways of coping with life that ends up making our life and making things better. I mean, making things worse, not better. Things that are subtly or not so subtly sabotaging our own life and health and happiness. In Samson's story, he he did all these destructive things to make himself feel better in the moment that ended up causing him and all the people he loved and all of the people he was supposed to be serving and helping, it ended up making their life worse and causing them all kinds of problems that they would not have otherwise had. And then when he didn't want to have to deal with any of it, he ran away and hid in a cave. (laughs) Isn't that kind of what we do, right? Because I I don't know about you, but when I read the story, like Samson's a mess, it's really easy for me to judge him. But if I'm being honest, I've done some of the same stuff. I've made things worse because I was trying to just feel better in the moment. And and then when I had to sort of face all that down, I didn't want to. And so I closed myself off from other people. And we even have that language, right? In our culture, it's like, I'm going into a cave, separating myself away from other people, or hiding out. It's strange because it's always a, me- a recipe for misery, but our first impulse in these moments is always isolation, to kind of push everybody away, to sort of be, come in and bring it in and self-focus. But when we really need is the exact opposite. I mean, if you just stop and think about Samson's life for a minute, in this moment, he's incredibly emotional. He's incredibly angry. Was, I mean, do you think he's more or less likely to make good choices or self-destructive choices when he's alone in a cave? Or if he was actually surrounded by people who love him and want the best for him and will be like, hey man, I don't know what's going on with you, but that, that's not who you are. You, you don't have to go down that path. I mean, it seems pretty obvious, right? Which one would be healthier? And the truth is, is when we have the right people, when we build the right community around us, when we take the time to invest in relationships with people who support us, when we get the right community around us, it actually helps us keep from indulging in those things that will ultimately destroy us, which is part of the reason why, like no matter who does these, uh, no matter who does these surveys, whether it's a university or the government or churches, you know, we talked a little bit about this last week that, that regularly people who are connected on a regular basis in a church always record and report higher levels of happiness than people who are not. And I think part of the reason why is because they have a people. They have people who come around them and support them. Yes, their faith is a huge part of their life. Yes, there's that component. But I think some of it is the fact that they're surrounded by people who are going, hey, that, 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 that will call them to their best selves, that will support them when life is tough. Okay, so all that's great. Maybe don't go off and kill people, Samson. But what are we, so what are we supposed to do? Do we just ignore our feelings? Do we just kind of just pretend like it's not there? How how do we cope with this? So there's a powerful principle that I think is found uh, in in the New Testament in Ephesians. And um, in in this particular verse, it's a very short verse. I'm going to give it to you in just a second. It's talking about anger, but I believe that we can extrapolate out from it a principle. I believe that it gives us a principle that can apply really to almost anything that we're experiencing emotionally. So check it out. in Ephesians chapter four, verse 26, it says this, it says, be angry and do not sin. Be angry and do not sin. Simple enough, short to the point, be angry and don't sin. So I don't want you to miss the significance of this because it's so simple. Because I really think that this is profound. See, there's two parts to what he says. Part of it, the first part, he's like, look, whatever it is, feel it, be angry. If you're angry, be angry. If you're sad, be sad, be disappointed, be stressed, be upset, feel it. Like, don't just gloss over this because denying and pretending or stuffing them down just doesn't work. Right? And so the apostles, Paul's like, whatever it is that you're feeling, if you're angry, be angry, but he didn't stop there. He says, you can feel it, but don't let it dictate what you do. Feel it, but don't let it control you. Feel it, but don't let it drive you to do something that's destructive or sinful that actually short circuits your life and your faith. This is a challenge for us because in our culture, we we live in a culture that says, if you don't act on your feelings, you're a hypocrite, right? If you feel something and you don't actually act on it, then you're just not being authentic and real. But there's actually no quicker way to sabotage your life and happiness and find yourself in a miserable life than by basing all of your actions on your feelings. Don't suppress or deny them, but you are not your feelings. God gave them to you. You have them, you can feel them. They're not, you are in charge of you, not them. If we lived our lives based on like satisfying or satiating or alleviating our feelings, ultimately they will hijack our thinking. And here's why, because we will start to rationalize whatever behavior was necessary to satisfy those feelings. So we will find ourselves in Samson's case, the most extreme case we can think of, he finds himself murdering people, but justifying it because it made him feel better. And you and I know that we could justify any range of behaviors just going because it makes me feel better. One translation says, don't sin by letting anger control you. What, what if you just plucked out anger? Maybe anger's not your thing. What if there was just a blank that you filled in the blank with? Don't sin by letting fear or stress or anxiety or disappointment or hurt or unforgiveness or sadness or regret or frustration or worry or anger. Don't sin by letting your emotions control you. See, we're, we're not less stressed by trying to feel less stressed. We don't feel less hurt or disappointed by trying not to feel those things. You actually gotta feel them, but here's the key. We actually build happiness, long lasting happiness and health in our life and in our faith when we acknowledge and accept those emotions, but when we act on what is good, not just what feels good in the moment. Be angry, but don't sin. Long-lasting happiness comes from doing the right thing over trying to always just feel better. It comes from living in alignment with your values and that, that picture of who you want to be and who you know God created you to be, not from medicating your emotions just because you're in a mood. This is the recipe for building happiness in your life. So the principle that we see over and over and over again, especially in the New Testament, is this principle of sowing and reaping and sowing and reaping, right? And that's one of the problems that we have with these moments where we're feeling this really intense emotion. Because happiness is something where we plant seeds and we cultivate it and we build it over the long period of time. And the moment where we're feeling that intense emotion, we don't don't like that. We don't like that it takes time, right? We wanna feel better and we wanna feel better right now which is actually what you see in Samson's story over and over and over and over again. But can I just tell you, people who pursue their happiness above everything else usually wind up being the most unhappy people in the world. And the reason is, is because like even though it's counterintuitive to us, happiness actually comes from the inside out. It's an outcome. It's the end result of a lot of hard work on your character and in your relationships and in your heart and in your soul. And that requires you to make decisions and to behave in a way where you deny yourself and you do things that are uncomfortable sometimes and you do things that don't feel good in the moment or you have to do things that don't make you immediately happy, but ultimately you're planting those seeds and you're sowing the seeds of happiness and they they will grow up into a lifetime of joy and peace and happiness. When we do the work of happiness, it actually requires us to shift our coping mechanisms from just trying to always escape and numb out and make ourselves feel better right now to actually us having to deal with our current reality without sacrificing our long-term character, our long-term happiness, our long-term peace and joy that God created us to live with. So there's all kinds of warnings about this in the New Testament. In Galatians chapter five, verse 13 says, you were called to be free, that God created you to live free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh, rather serve one another humbly in love, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. I don't want you to miss the profound thing that Paul is talking about here because he's going, you were created and called and invited to live a life of freedom, freedom from sin, freedom from your past, freedom from yourself. But we so easily in our freedom, make decisions that limit the freedom that God gives us. We so easily trade the freedom that God created us for and called us to for a momentary bump of pleasure so that we can avoid feeling bad for a few minutes. And did you catch what he says in verse 15? He says, if you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. See, nobody, nobody sets out for this to be the story of their relationships But the truth is, is that when we're driven to constantly try to feel better, so often we begin to hurt and devour and consume and use and take advantage of people in the process just so we can feel better. And you know exactly what that feels like because you've had people in your life that you were just like, I think they're just using me so that they can feel a little better. That certainly was Samson's story. Here's the other thing I want you to see from Galatians. I think it's absolutely fascinating and mind blowing and just feels like a giant leap of logic that Paul makes. But I have discovered that what he's saying is absolutely true because the antidote that Paul gives us for this self-destructive sort of coping to make ourselves feel better Is humbly loving and serving other people. It's kindness. It's living out and fulfilling the commandment of loving others as yourself. See, that doesn't feel super intuitive, but let me tell you something that you know rings true. You will never, ever meet a truly happy person who is selfish and self focused. You will never meet somebody who's discovered and built a lifetime of happiness that's focused on themselves. In fact, oftentimes even therapists in clinical settings, when they're dealing with people who are dealing with or struggling with severe anxiety or depression or self-hatred or whatever, a lot of times what they will do is begin to try to give them assignments that turn the focus of all of their thinking and energy away from themselves cuz they're trapped and just thinking about how to feel better and the what you know their life and their situation and beginning to try to find other people to serve and love and care about It's no wonder that the New Testament is full of instructions telling us to love people and pray for them and serve and encourage and bear with and be interested in and accept and forgive one another over and over and over again in all of the New Testament letters. And that's actually what Samson was called to do. But he didn't use his strength. He didn't use any of his giftedness to do any of that. Instead, he used it to chase feeling better. He used it to chase pleasure. He used it to indulge his own emotions. And as I said a minute ago, he not only destroyed his own life and his own happiness, he hurt and caused a lot of pain for a lot of different kinds of people. Now, before we end, I want you to hear this part. There's one more thing I want to say. There is no guilt or shame around this conversation. Some of us are struggling against Bad habits, unhealthy coping mechanisms that we developed at a different time in our life when we either didn't know better or we were going through a time in our life where we were just trying to survive. And so here's what I want you to hear. If whatever you did to numb out during some trauma, some deeply painful period of time in your life, helped you survive that thing, Don't judge that. You did what you had to do to survive. In fact, um, some of you know a little bit of our story, even the last few years, there's been a lot of trauma in our life prior to 2019, 2015 to 2019. And dealing with so much of that, you can like see my habits and you know, I talked a little bit a while ago about food and making it through and then my wife, that one different, at, at one time was on just all kinds of different medications to try to just help her deal with the emotional trauma. Right? So there's no judgment. Like God's not mad at you because you have this thing that you this that you've developed, right? He's not judging you and if he's not mad at you and he's not judging you, you shouldn't be doing that either. But here's the problem. So often we develop these behaviors and 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 we hold on to them long after they're useful. See, there was maybe something, a really dark chapter that was really traumatic and you doing that really thing that's not really, that that thing that's really not good for you helped you get through it. But now your life is not dark and traumatic. And yet you have this habit that you keep going back to over and over and over again. And it's outlived its usefulness. It's no longer helping you make it through something terrible. It's actually hurting you and keeping you from becoming and who God created you to be and living in freedom. And so whatever it is, hear me, you no longer need it. You can be grateful that it got you through, that you survived. You can say thank you and release it and let it go on its way. And you can move on to actually better, healthier habits that lead towards freedom and hope and life. See, you don't actually have to continue sabotaging your life and your happiness for just a few fleeting moments of escape. We don't actually have to keep making things worse just because we're trying to feel better in the moment. You don't have to choose between ignoring or indulging your feelings. You can actually practice self-love and self-accountability at the same time. That's part of what the apostle Paul was talking about. Be angry, feel it. But you also have to hold yourself accountable for what you do. I know it sounds crazy, but what if this week when you were tempted to just turn to that same old coping mechanism that's just dragging you down, what if you chose to feel good by doing good? I know it sounds crazy. What if you chose instead of like, I just want to swing through the drive-thru, right? Or I want to hit up the pub or I want to go home and put my headphones out and turn the game on. And play video games for the next eight hours. What if instead of doing that, you actually did something good, additive, a blessing. You loved someone else. You showed some kindness. I know we think, ah, it wouldn't work. (laughs) But it's sowing and it's reaping. What if you focused this week on solving the problems that you can solve, but then finding healthy and helpful ways to cope with the ones that you can't, that you just got to endure? What if you began to lean into relationships that help you address whatever part of this you tend to ignore, which is either your feelings or your actions? Because most of us tend to ignore one or the other. We're just all feelings, and they drive everything we do. Or we're just like, doesn't matter what you feel. Just push it down and just do the right thing. but you got to have both be angry, feel it, but don't sin. I I love those verses in Galatians that it is for freedom that you've been set free, that God has called you, created you for freedom. Um, Last week we ended here and I'm going to end here again. That if you want to build a life of happiness, I'm not talking about happy, happy, joy, joy in a moment. If you want to build a life that's healthy, that has peace, at peace with yourself and God and other people, it really begins stepping into a relationship with the God who created you through his Son. See, you were created for freedom, and Christ has come to set us free, but we only get to experience that freedom when we live in relationship to him. And some of us maybe have never stepped into that relationship. And if that's you today, you can take that step and open your heart to Christ and give him your life. And then some of us have made that decision, but we've traded away some of, or maybe a lot of the freedom that he offers and brings us. And even though we've experienced faith in Jesus, we live bound up by our own, driven by our own emotions. And maybe today is a day where you can stop And be honest and reflect and have a conversation with God about that and begin to invite him into that space. Would you pray with me?